0: Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarinas, and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single topic, think about a question, and unpack the rest. Today, we're asking... How do founders hold two ideas in their heads? Both that there is an economic downturn, but also that things are looking up for many industries. To talk about this dissonance, as always, I have the Brill Alex Wilhelm here with me. Alex, how's it going? Uh,
1: Going good. I'm just a little bit concerned that by calling me, quote, Brill presenting expectations (laughs) a little
0: higher... Not high enough, if you ask me. You've been on it on all fronts, and I very much appreciate you being on to do crazy episodes like this all the time. Well,
1: I think this is the perfect episode for us to kind of sit and have a chat, because I was just rereading your last newsletter, which seems to be kind of like the root of what we're going to talk about today, and I thought it was a really good encapsulation of the same struggle that I'm having, which is, what is going on?
0: Oh my God, and we will get to it, but I noticed even in your language in writing about climate investment, you talked about just so many different data sources because it was like we can't assume one source is the truth these days there is so much dissonance but yeah like let's start with a little bit of my newsletter because it was really inspired by this idea that we're like getting a lot of contradictions in the market and so just reading one paragraph that was really built on TC plus reporting you know how is there both more VC dry powder than ever before but also a slowdown in investments how can fintech still receive one out of every five dollars in venture but still be the sector with the most layoffs and you know how can stripes adjust valuation be bullish news for a company ahead of the curve, but still be a significant slash to its internal valuation. And so there's so much there. And, And today's episode is really getting into those green shoots and trying to contextualize them within what we've been talking a lot about on the Wednesday show, which is the layoffs, the downturn, and that unexpected impact.
1: Yeah. I don't think we're going to get all the way to flipping the coin over and going full positive, but I think it's good to kind of outline the good next to the bad and kind of weigh them because it's a strange period in the market. But that's exciting because, you know, back in 2021, every quarter I wrote the same post, which is venture capital reaches new record. Huzzah. And now on the other hand, I feel like everyone I talk to has an entirely different perspective, which means divergent investing strategies, divergent founding strategies, quite a lot going on.
0: Yeah. I mean, and honestly, you're catching me on a good day because I think personally as a reporter, I guess that's professionally, but whatever. um, (laughs) It's been very up and down in terms of like how it feels to cover this. And we're lucky to have jobs. But I think this has been one of those weeks where I feel really lucky to be a reporter hearing people change their minds in real time. It just Mm. feels like a history moment in tech adventure.
1: I mean, it is. It is a moment of history because we're now post the boom that we were in for so long to a degree, I'll caveat that, because like we said, everything's a little bit kind of pointing in different directions, but certainly we're no longer in 2021. And I think that was the peak of the last venture cycle, the last startup cycle, if you will. And so the question now is, what's in the aftermath? Is it more hangover or is it more like new normal? Yeah. Venture investment levels are above 2020, but what does that mean compared to last year? It's the right question to ask at the right time. So I think, well, one, we should dive into it, but also I think this is just the perfect topic.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, good, I'm glad. And I want to jump into the numbers, but before that I thought, Maybe it'd be fun for us to do a temperature check. I know you interviewed Queen Lee a while ago, and I'm curious- What's the vibe been with founders that are raising or are coming to you with funding rounds?
1: Well, I mean, the vibe amongst founders who have raised is unsurprisingly bullish. I mean, because they just landed new capital during a period of time in which it's supposed to be very, very hard. I think we have to lean back on the old venture maxim that good companies can always raise, which I view as more of an excuse than an explanation for certain things. But it does hold up and does kind of bear true. So generally speaking, those conversations are pretty positive. It's harder to get folks on the record to say things like, We're struggling. This is hard. But that said, I think that there have been a number of small startup deaths that are kind of counteracting the positivity. So, Mod Z shut down. We saw that on TC the other day. An OKR focused startup called Koan shut down a little bit ago. And so, I'm starting to see the seeds of discontent out there as well.
0: Okay, that's good to know. It is the elephant in the room that people are talking about very diplomatically right now. If you're raising and you're in a position of growth, the downturn, I think, is just like kind of an interview bucket that you have questions prepared for. And so, in some ways, like, I still appreciate it because it's better than like we have no competitors and everything is growing right now. But just to add on my two cents, the other day, or I guess yesterday, I interviewed Bahia, who is the brains behind a fellowship program, VC Include. And it's all about getting first-time fund managers from historically overlooked backgrounds into the field of venture. And so they announced that. And I was like, wow, what a time to be jumping in and trying to get emerging fund managers (laughs) into venture. And, And her take was very much, I think you alluded to this, which is like the data is definitely showing us a change and a shift in sentiment that is looking downward. But comparing to 2020, there has never been more active, in her case, more active, diverse emerging fund managers in the ecosystem today than ever before. And so to me, it was kind of like a good perspective on like, yes, there is this downturn, but we are net ahead of where we were looking back a few years. So she can grab onto some of that as proof of the reason to launch this program right now.
1: I think that's right. I think we have seen a plethora of new, diverse, emerging fund managers. Well, I guess new and emerging kind of go together, not to repeat myself. But at the same time, we are not seeing the same results that we might want to see when it comes to more diverse investment. I mean, we often think about things in terms of sector, you know, fintech or business model SaaS or geography, North America, or whatever. But when you think about investment into different founders along other axes, the data's been kind of bleh. Yeah. And so like, I think one element to the discussion of, is it a good time or a bad time? Is it the best of times? Is it the worst of times? Is that the answer could actually be somewhat in the middle. So it could be, back to your point, a time in which we're seeing more emerging fund managers. Also, how many of those are going to be able to raise a fund too? So it's, it's always this kind of balance between the positive and the negative, which makes the whole thing feel unsettled to a degree.
0: Right. I think like absolute statements never were the best way to function probably as a founder or an investor. But that's especially true today. Thankfully, we're not just basing this all off of sentiment. I think we should jump into the numbers. We have so much interesting work from your team at TC Plus, just looking into like a lot of the Q2 2022 data. And one story that you, me and Marianne worked on was about fintech and how fintech funding results are just coming in. So fintech is still accounting for a significant share of global funding. I think last year, the stat that everyone talked about was that fintech really accounts for one out of every five dollars that are being invested these days. And in the second quarter of 2022, at least according to CB Insights, it's the same deal. Fintech startups are still accounting for one out of every five. And the fact that it's not that far off to me signals that fintech isn't completely losing its luster as a sector. It just might be those layoff stories we're seeing. It might just be kind of this correction on some of the ones that weren't too focused on making money or having those super strong.
1: Or it was the fintech companies that had very expensive customer acquisition channels, for example. I mean, you might see companies that had a higher than anticipated or comfortable burn rate pull back on their recruiting staff, for example. I think it's important to note that when we talk about there still being roughly one in five dollars going into fintech, more or less, you can count it different ways. Do you count crypto in there? There's always nuance to the venture data. We're talking about a smaller bucket, in 2022. And so the, the cb report that you're citing said that global fintech funding fell 33% to 20.4 billion, which is off a third compared to the first quarter of this year, but it was up nearly 70% compared to Q2 of 2020. So uh, it's good, bad. The layoffs thing though, Natasha, I have a question for you, which yeah. is there's still lots of capital, but not enough to support last year's spend and burn rates. So does that mean we've hit like the Goldilocks zone of fintech, like more capital than before, but also maybe a bit more sanity and conservativism?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't view layoffs as... Simply responses to VCs, you know, being unwilling to provide their portfolio companies extension capital, even if it would save jobs. I think like layoffs feel like probably do this and then you can raise in a way. Oh,
1: okay. So that's an interesting point. One thing I've heard, and this is kind of the thing that you hear on, let's say background from people that you're familiar with when they're kind yeah. of just like filling you in on on what's going on, that some investors do like to see founders willing to and able to make really hard painful choices as indicative of a backbone, for lack of a better phrase. And so you're right, the layoffs may not actually be about marginal burn rate reductions, but more about proof that the CEO or founder is able to swing the ax when yeah, needed or exactly. asked. Yeah,
0: And it's a good point, though, to bring up layoffs because fintech, as we covered two weeks ago, it's the leading sector in the startup workforce reduction world right now, uh, which sounds like really intense startup workforce reduction world. But the fact that it is both the sector getting a massive chunk of dollars and the one that leads layoffs does create this kind of difficult thing where it's like, I think the sweet spot, though, to be is very much like. If you're an early stage startup, it's a good time. And if you're a late stage startup, you might be facing a correction of sorts, which matches up with what we've been hearing for the past few months. Yeah,
1: absolutely. But then whenever I start to kind of like form this picture of a a chastened fintech funding market, I turn around and there's a new story that pushes the other way. In this case, Marianne Azevedo, our dear colleague, friend, and Friday Equity co-host, wrote that Ramp's revenue run rate, Ramp is a competitor in the corporate spend space, has like doubled so far this year.
0: (laughs) Right, right. It's like, well. (laughs)
1: <laughs> All right. So I guess, because if you think about it, we would expect to see layoffs in the most overfunded and most competitive fintech sectors, right? Because yeah. like I said, they did the most capital and they were going against one another. So you presume that they were overhiring perhaps or over advertising or whatever. And Ramp isn't one of the most competitive parts of fintech, corporate spend. It's it's popular around the world. Yeah, yeah. And yet it's it's doubling in like seven months. So yeah, it's, it's hard to say.
0: It has all the traits of a company and hopefully this isn't too bad to say, but it has all the traits of a company where you're like, okay, you are a unicorn. You spend a lot of money. You are very, very venture backed. Layoffs are coming, right? Like I think that there was kind of that thesis or narrative in a way over the past few months where if you are a tech unicorn, you probably overspent a little bit and need to slim down. Yeah. But it's kind of like how we approach a new beat. You have to like take everything you can and make an absolute statement after a year versus in the moment. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And on that point, I mean, thinking about other areas of startup land that we track very carefully, thinking back a year, thinking back to where we are now, crypto is a good example of this. You might expect investors who a year ago were ebullient with uh, optimism and hype and FOMO and JPEG PFPs with this year pulling back and saying, oh, you know, well, we got burned. That's terrible. But in reality, Jacqueline Melanick reports for TC that, uh, frankly, there's a lot of investors who are still incredibly bullish and willing to go on the record saying that they're going to be putting more capital to work. So again, plus minus, it's this constant teeter-totter, if you will. Remember that childhood thing from Playgrounds? Yeah, totally. Like a teeter-totter of like of sentiment in which we're we're, like (laughs) dancing on ice, but we haven't fallen through yet.
0: And we might not. Right. I think the we might not is a really relieving thing to hear, honestly, because it just like takes a little bit of the pressure off and we can hedge and we do as we are right now. So people aren't getting confused or feeling like they should do either or. But I think especially crypto, it was like the sector that like a lot of people viewed as the exception for people to get their first time funds. It's like you will close if you do crypto or it's like the sector that is so early that like I thought it had a little longer before it was going to have a reckoning. I'm sorry. I I I just
1: I can't take something you said. Tell me. Not your fault, but just it's. Sticks in my beak. Crypto was not new. Yeah, crypto's been around for so long now. I first covered crypto when I was a reporter at the Next Web, which was like eight jobs ago. <laughs> it was like twenty twelve right? like twenty thirteen.
0: Hype was new. Is that fair? Like, or do you feel like the hype was also cycles?
1: I mean, how many times have I gone through a crypto boom and bust? I recall being drunk off my ass in San Francisco in my little apartment, laying in bed watching not Bedfinex, uh, Mount Gox charts during one of the early like twenty. 20- <laughs> 13 crypto pumps. Like, I mean, I've I've been tracking this for so long. It's not new. It's just not useful. And so people want to keep claiming that it's new. It's like our relationship is new. That's why we argue all the time. We haven't figured each other out yet. No, you just don't like each other. Break up.
0: (laughs) It's kind of, I'm thinking too, like on a a startup, in a a startup angle, like moving your founding date closer and closer to like 2022. And you're just like, oh, we start, like we were a year. Like we've just done all this in a year. And you're just like, what is the truth? Like, have you actually been working on this since 1996?
1: When the founders came together, was it the incorporation date? Was it the time? they change their name. People love to tell <laughs> a story that appears to be a straight line from like founding to success. And let's be clear, Natasha, we have enough friends who build stuff to know that that's never the case.
0: Right. Of course. And we, we love covering it anyways, but I appreciate the nuance on crypto not being new. The new part in a way is like, I think venture investors being so loudly creating funds around it and creating like these like nine-figure funds, six-figure funds around yeah. it. It was the 2021 story to cover. And now there's this unknown recovery timeline and Jackie wrote a good story about how some are doubling down. And so I feel like the fact that some of that dry powder that we are seeing coming into venture continuing to stick on crypto, it's doing the thing that I think a lot of people want for when sectors blow up overnight or, or re-blow up overnight, which is take out the tourists and see who's actually here to stay. I think that's what we're going to be seeing.
1: All right. So the tourist point's interesting. I think this matters a lot to the conversation because one thing we did see through 2020 and 2021 21 was a influx of capital from non-venture sources. And venture is a fuzzy term we call Andreessen Horowitz a venture firm, even though they're actually a registered investment advisor. Right. So is, I think, Sequoia now and some other people. But there are also venture firms in the way that we think about them. So it's muddled. But we saw crossover funds, Tigers, Fidelities, and so forth pile into this space. And so a lot of capital arrived, and then a lot of capital has kind of pulled back, and people call this tourism. You know, people arriving for a short period of time, the Airbnb of financing, if you will arrive and clean up your own mess on the way out. I think it was (laughs) Hunter walk who said something about how, like, it's not like tourism per se. It's more like these major capital pools have multiple houses and sometimes they go and stay in their venture house. When's okay. the right season. And I think that's pretty good because you don't go to your beach house expecting there to be a hurricane, but you would probably f*** off if one came. And right. so if you're a tiger and, you know, you're just hanging out there in the sun, writing checks and throwing them into the ocean, and then suddenly, you know, the sky goes black and thunder and lightning come, you're probably going to bounce. And so that's, to me, more apt.
0: Oh, that's such a good metaphor. And it kind of makes me think too, like, at the end of the day, like you want to dodge the hurricane. Yes. Signal is one thing like, Oh, they left our town when it needed it the most, but also like you're a human. And as an investor, you very much have a responsibility to LPs to bring that money back. So it's kind of fun in a way to see investors be okay with the quote negative signal of departing the areas that they, you know, were so bullish on previously into other sectors. Like, and right now I guess I'm kind of talking about a lot of the late stage investors going early stage and there's just like no harm for them. Like, how does that hurt them? It doesn't at
1: all. Yeah, I wonder, uh, reputation used to matter a lot in venture and it still does, but I think it was probably even more potent a force when venture was like eight people on Sand Hill Road, you know? Yeah. And like you could literally totally. like, walk down the sidewalk there and then look at the, the really sad office parks <laughs> that was yeah. the, the hub of venture capital. And probably, yeah, if you were a jerk, you know, word got around because everyone went to the Rosewood. Venture is much bigger now, more distributed, more decentralized, if you will. And so I, I wonder how much reputation matters. And so I wonder if you can And just kind of pop in, do some deals, pop out, and not worry about signaling risk or pedigree as much as you might have once.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I feel like that's like actually the perfect segue into like the geographic markets that are growing right now. But I want to plug the fact that climate serves are another sector that we're seeing on track to have a banner year. And we'll link that in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah, and then also there's other standout points just to kind of extend that. Like I think European ed tech's been doing well. Europe has seen smaller sequential declines than other regions. So there's a mix of industry and geography. Let's put industry and go yeah. to geography, but keep in mind, they are linked to a large degree.
0: Totally, totally. So the story I really want to focus on in the geography section is Africa's startup market. I think a few weeks ago, we had a piece about how African startups may be on track to be escaping a little bit of this downturn based on the idea that we haven't seen too much of a slowdown. And now we finally got the data. And Alex, you wrote a story for the exchange about how it's bucking the global slowdown. So what are the high-level numbers?
1: Well, I mean, from a directional perspective, what matters is numbers are going up. And so what we do is we kind of look at H1 numbers, or the first half of this year, and then we kind of ask ourselves, if we doubled that, let's say the pace maintained kind of the same thing, where would we end up? And if you think about it, I think it's roughly 2.4 billion Raised in Africa last year, we're at roughly 1.7 billion through the first half of this year. Wow. Which is insane. So venture capital will have to slow down to a dribble in Africa compared to its Q1, Q2 pace to not surpass last year's numbers. So even if you bake in a 50% sequential decline from H1 to H2, it's still an ATH, as we say, or an all-time high. And- there's a lot to say about this. One is just the scope of the African startup opportunity. Two is the relative historical dearth of capital fundraising in that space. And then three, also the fact that Africa is a smaller venture capital market in dollar terms, not in human or opportunity terms. And so one round can bolster numbers more so than in other spaces. Like we often talk about how the Ant financial round that was like $15 billion back in like 2014 or yeah, yeah. 16, somewhere in there, like really skewed numbers for that year. Well, like in the African scene, like a 500 million dollar round could make a quarter superlative, or if it lands the next quarter, a catastrophe. Wow, and so it's still smaller and therefore more fluid. And so it's important that it's going up, but it's still kind of small,
0: finicky, a little finicky, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a colicky horse.
0: <laughs> I'm curious, no, it's to see not. What, Don't
1: wait, that, that analogy is terrible. I, okay, I was the, just
0: make <laughs> delete the metaphor, <laughs> <force. laughs> delete. Cancel. I was just thinking about a really
1: touchy <laughs> animal that I'm like, am I calling an entire continent startup scene a twitchy horse? Cause that's not what I wanted to do. No, the no, twitchy horse is, is Cupertino. We all know.
0: <laughs> um, I was just going to add like kind of peripherally not looking at the funding. I know like, I've used YC as a little bit of a way to understand yeah. the interest in the continent of Africa, which maybe is misguided, but that is one way I'm looking at it. And I know like the last batch had 24 startups from Africa, which was its record compared yep. to before. And we're going to probably get YC's new batch information relatively soon. I don't know where the year has gone. The way it matches with the point you just made, Alex, is like there may be these outsized rounds that skew data, but good sign always to know that like the early startups are getting seed money to start because they're going to be the ones that get those rounds eventually. i just gives another example of bullishness. Zooming out into like the second half of this conversation, I feel like we've talked a lot about the green shoots and I want to kind of reverse engineer a little bit and be like, what does it look like to be a green shoot these days? Right now it sounds like you have to be an international company that is in a sector that is super hot still regardless of layoffs and has kind of like a pool of investors that have dedicated funds toward it. How does that match up with your definition of what it must be like to be green these days?
1: I think mine's actually a little bit different. Oh, the, the thing that I'm thinking about the most is what happens to demand. I'm tracking a couple of things to understand this. One is American consumer spending, European energy prices, Chinese consumer spending, consumer debt loads around the world and so forth. And then also on the corporate side, what are we seeing on the demand portion of their profit and loss numbers? And I'm trying to figure out how much want is in the market because that's Mm. going to drive essentially growth opportunities for startups across a number of sectors. So anything that's B to C, we care a lot about consumer spend data, how levered are consumers and so forth. And then on the corporate side, how stressed are corporations, how much free cash flow do they have to spend and how willing are they to invest in products that might help them do a little bit more, a little bit faster. And because of the strength of the consumer in America, especially even in the face of inflation that makes me feel poor, I think. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like I was in the sandwich shop and I'm like, why is it fourteen dollars? I'm oh God, in Providence. My,
0: my coffee costs Chipotle, which I know maybe Chipotle is also pretty cheap, but I just it never cost a chipotle. I was like, I'm sorry, frick. are
1: you saying that the cost of your fills is now equivalent to going to Chipotle?
0: Yes, which is to me wild.
1: Well someone was not ordering extra guac.
0: Veggie bowls, quack comes free. Can you imagine
1: going to Chipotle and ordering a bad salad?
0: Like why? Why would you go? (gasps) Bring in Sav. Bring in Sav.
1: (laughs) There's a long history of us arguing about uh, about, um, Chipotle bowls.
0: (laughs) It's cross, it's cross employers. It's cross podcasts. Sometimes you just can't let
1: something go. (laughs) But I, I think the inflation point is interesting. And on the corporate side, Natasha, the question is how much demand is there? And the reason why I can't quite let this go and why I'm not as worried as some people are about, the overall health of the startup market is that if you go back to March 2020, everyone thought that tech was done. Recession was coming, startups were doomed, everything was going to zero, bunker up now, you know, nuclear winter. And instead, everyone realized about six weeks later was that demand for technology products was actually going up because of remote work and the demand. So are we with strong consumer and potentially strong enterprise demand really in that bad of a place. And if we're not, then there should not just be green shoots, as you said, in a market with a hot sector and an active investing group, but more broadly, it should be like a lawn out there.
0: I am so glad you took us in this direction because, I mean, in some ways it's like both historical, it brings up our history of startups during a moment of like insane tension and pullback and also where we actually are today. And it makes me think a little bit about this idea that like, yes, there are so many layoffs, but it's they're happening during the Great Resignation. The Great Resignation hasn't been a headline in a few weeks, but I don't think it's gone away necessarily. So if we just look at that example too, like there is this pressure of companies still needing to sweeten the deal for future hires or fill in that demand or fill in like so many job openings right now. And so there's no way that everyone's paused or there's no way that every investor is waiting in the wings until the market gets a little bit more stable. People have to function because like the reality is it's not just a downturn.
1: It's not just a downturn because I think downturn implies a holistic or broader based uh, f***ing of technology companies (laughs) and startups. But like, I just pulled up the uh, layoffs.fyi charts, which Mm -hmm. we all love and check all the time. Love, And if you look at July's layoffs and the rate we've seen thus far through the first 19, 20 days of the month, we are not on pace to set a new local maximum of layoffs. Indeed, we're actually down from June levels and we'll also come under, I think, May levels as well. And so those peaks that were already under didn't get close to what we saw in 2020. This layoff wave, yes, it was a change, but it wasn't as large of a crest as we saw before. And so like, I'm kind of wondering if what we have seen is a lot of companies that got a little ahead of their skis on spend or hiring or valuation or whatever look to retool themselves to get into, you know, better shape. But it's not like everyone's falling apart. I mean, when I talk to founders, there's still, uh, people aren't sad, you know?
0: Yeah. And I'll be the first to say it. Like dumb ideas are still getting funded. Like one one stress I had, which we talked about in this podcast for sure, was like, is VC just going to get boring? Like, are we just going to see like the predictable revenue day one startups get funding? I'm not saying revenue is boring, but you know what I mean, right? You
1: are saying revenue is boring. (laughs) That is exactly what you're saying.
0: Are are the moonshots no longer going to get funded? Um, And the moonshots, I will tell you, are still getting
1: funded. (laughs) Actually, it's quite true. The moonshots are getting funded. And do you know what is the best funded moonshot out there
0: SpaceX. Oh god. Oh literal god. literal no. moonshot. <laughs> I mean actually like the fact that Go these Mars companies shot. are still doing it and crypto is still cryptoing and edtech despite this huge, huge change in customer behavior are still birthing unicorns and things are going internationally. It just feels like there's this, we talked about an imbalance and dissonance, but it also to me is like, if you're a founder right now, like you can give yourself, you can find activation energy and that's exciting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't mean just to be clear that even if you build a company that goes well and your startup grows and you raise money, you're going to get last year's prices. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think that has That has changed to a a degree in which it will not snap back. The public markets have said very clearly last year's tech valuations were wrong and we're not going back to them. And so this week I wrote about essentially the Instacart discount, I'm calling it. Instacart was uh, repriced by one of its investors again because crossover funds back to that often hold public stocks. They often have different reporting requirements. So they have funds that include private companies. We get to see their marks. And so we get to kind of learn what major investors are thinking about private companies in real time, which is really cool. Music Unless lawyers. you're Instacart and you got <laughs> undervalued. Not the first time. Fidelity cut the price of their shares of Instacart. Yeah. And so this other one wasn't Fidelity a surprise.
0: Fidelity with Stripe I- too, I think.
1: It has happened with Stripe, yeah. And then we're not going to get to the 409A stuff today, but there's a lot there too. But Natasha, if you apply the Instacart discount, which is 62% from peak to trough, according to this investor that I covered this week, nearly every unicorn at a 62% valuation cut is no longer a unicorn. And so that is a change. And so sure, there's capital, sure, there's enthusiasm, there's still demand, but the easy valuation gains, that might be gone.
0: Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's a really powerful framing because I think we've been hearing like this idea of like things becoming more realistic and getting recorrected that shows up in more than just pivots or layoffs. It shows up in these like monikers that people really were fighting to get and now have to take back. And I haven't seen too much take is happening um, in such a dramatic way.
1: Well, I, I think we used to joke that the term unicorn meant nothing. It had become so dilute, so not I'm not going to say not hard to reach, but achievable for so many companies that it had it no longer indicated something special about you. It was just like, oh, you've raised a series C, congratulations. Yeah, right. It could be coming back to the point in which now actually reaching Unicorns for the first time does mean something. Because if I came to you and said, Natasha, we just raised 75 at a you know, $1,000 million post or $1 billion post, I think you would care much more than you would have a year ago.
0: It feels like there's like the real unicorns that are coming up right now. I guess I'm happy to have a new signal (laughs) and I'm happy to care about unicorns again. I kind of feel like getting numb to all of this was really hard Um, and didn't do anyone a service. Like I'm not saying it's like on journalism necessarily to like find the true meaning of unicorns. I guess it kind of is, but you know what I mean? Getting them to unicorns, that was super. Now, what do we care about? <laughs> well, I
1: mean, we all talked about revenue for a hot minute and then, then everything went to shit. So <laughs> it's been tough. I want to throw in one more nuance. I'm curious about impacts on more diverse people. We talked earlier about emerging fund managers and yeah. so forth, but also just like- the female founders data sucks. And the number of, you know, black founders in America as a number that we track sucks. And a lot of stuff that was getting just fractionally better could be resetting back to prior figures. And that is a choice that the venture market's making essentially. And it's a, it's a bummer and it's It's, depressing. So even though we're willing to look at the bright side, it's not all light and sunshine.
0: Yeah. I mean, I know the data disagrees with me and I'm not necessarily in the business of making predictions, but I feel like I am pretty optimistic about the positioning for some of the historically overlooked founders right now. It's going back to an argument we've been hearing for so long, which is the people who have been historically overlooked are used to weathering a storm, are used to building their businesses through a dry funding environment, and so I just talked to a female founder the other day who had bootstrapped her company to profitability for almost like six or seven years and just got that first check of venture funding, and so I think that of course that's an anecdote, but I am hopeful that investors especially the diverse ones will be taking a lead here and just kind of, I don't know, maybe bringing together a little bit of this dissonance finally, which is like (laughs) diverse founders know how to build sustainable businesses and we're in a moment of needing sustainable businesses.
1: Well, that would be actually a good argument if you were an investor to put more money into more diverse founders as opposed to less. And yet we're seeing the opposite. Yeah. So much like how venture capitalists this year are claiming they want to do due diligence and want to pay less for startups, last year they couldn't race quickly enough to put money into companies they weren't doing diligence in. And so when things were expensive, they wanted to spend more. And now that things are cheap, they don't. Uh, Humans, what are you going to do?
0: Humans. Going back to our lead question as we end, I think the clear dynamic is that it's not necessarily how do founders hold these two ideas. They actually just have to. That is what your reality is right now. And I think putting yourself as a founder in the middle of that seesaw, what was the Teeter-totter. Uh, teeter-totter, thank you. Of that teeter-totter will hopefully help you not just skew one way or another depending on the day. I think it a lot of unlearning needs to happen and just being open to like being wrong about what you thought was true feels like an important thing to have always as a founder, but especially today.
1: Well said. Also, a closing mark for me, what do you call a small child eating carbs on the playground? A toddler eating tots on the teeter-totter.
0: Oh God. I just want to say
1: a bunch of T words together. That's (laughs) what I was thinking about when you were talking. I apologize. It's been a long time.
0: I mean, it's a perfect way to end the episode.
1: (laughs) A toddler eating eating tater tots on the teeter totter. There you go. That's what I wanted to say. I mean, tech,
0: (gasps) we could have even gotten tech in there.
1: Oh yes. Um, The high tech toddler eating tater tots on the teeter totter toddles towards tech crunch. There you go.
0: And with that, ta-ta, I will see everyone else um, on, on Friday. And Alex, thank you always for joining.
1: A pleasure.